There once lived an adventurous young woman in Melbourne, Australia. Athletic, strikingly beautiful, and so mysterious that she cast a spell on everyone she met. But in a luxury high-rise in December 2010, that mystery took a gruesome turn. How did this free spirit meet her death at the bottom of a garbage chute? This is the case of Phoebe Hanschuk. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 20 of Crime Cave. I'm Christy, and although the investigation into Phoebe Hanchuk's death has officially been closed, there is still a crazy amount of unanswered questions. It was initially deemed a suicide, but then relabeled death by misadventure. The circumstances surrounding this case are so spectacularly bizarre that I knew I had to cover this one. So I'm going to lay out what happened and talk about the findings. And then we're going to ask some questions. Maybe you'll come up with your own theory. In the meantime, let's get to know Phoebe Hanschuk. Phoebe Hanschuk was born May 9, 1986, and grew up in Melbourne, Australia, with her two younger brothers and her parents, Natalie and Lynn. Her mom was a veterinary nurse, and her father was a psychiatrist. Phoebe was undeniably close to her family. She considered her brother Tom to be her best friend growing up. She had a standing coffee date with her mom every Friday, and her most treasured confidant was her grandmother, Jeanette Campbell. As many teens do, Phoebe grappled with some emotional issues in her early teens, and when her parents divorced when she was about 13, she began experimenting with alcohol and party drugs. Still, Phoebe managed to excel in anything she did, playing guitar, climbing, martial arts, and she earned her black belt in two years instead of five. Phoebe was described as a live wire, an unstoppable force, constantly journaling poems, painting, and drawing. One friend described her as wild, engaging, witty, creative, and intelligent. So magnetic that she was one of those people if she put the tiniest effort into her appearance, men were falling at her feet. She was also a bit of a daredevil. Her mom would say, it was an intense and dynamic life she led, and she drove it like she stole it. Phoebe was also a very loyal friend and never judgmental. Despite her talent, beauty, and commanding presence, Phoebe was also plagued by self-doubt and shyness, and she long battled depression and substance abuse. She also had a penchant for older men. By the age of 24, she had been in a two-year relationship with a wealthy, successful, and prominent 43-year-old events promoter named Antony Hampel. He went by Ant. He came from an esteemed and well-connected family. His father was a retired Supreme Court judge, and his stepmother was a county court judge. By this point in their relationship, Phoebe had moved in with Ant in his luxury high-rise apartment building called the Balencia. Phoebe cared for Ant, but their relationship definitely had its challenges. Ant was described as a perfectionist, prone to jealousy, and would sometimes put her down. Phoebe's therapist would later say that she didn't feel like an equal partner in the relationship, and in the six weeks prior to her death, the pair had broken up and gotten back together four times. On Wednesday, December 1st, 2010, 
Phoebe had coffee with a friend and talked about future plans, which included traveling to India to volunteer in a village. Later that evening, Phoebe had had several drinks, and by the following morning, December 2nd, 2010, she was still sleeping by the time Aunt left for work at 9 a.m. At 11.47 a.m., a nearby construction crew accidentally set off the Valencia's fire alarm, and Phoebe could be seen on CCTV leaving the building with the rest of the occupants, with Aunt's bull terrier on a leash. She was then seen re-entering the building seven minutes later. Although the evacuation went smoothly, the incident did leave the building's video surveillance and security system temporarily compromised, rendering all key fob and swipe cards useless for a few hours and all hallways, elevators, and access points unmonitored. Phoebe went back up to her apartment on the 12th floor. She and Aunt had 7 p.m. dinner plans with her father that night. She was reportedly still in recovery mode from the previous night of drinking, which included a mass text to her family, which read, Hi family, I'm in bed and about to sleep, but when I wake, I will transform into the most incredible human being you've ever seen. Not. I will go to the hospital. It's safe there, and I hear the special tonight is tomato soup. Delicious, nutritious. I love you all very much, but not enough to send an individual text. Sorry about that, but time to sleep, and I must be on my way. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. XO. Aunt arrived home at around 6 p.m. to find the usually spotless and organized apartment in a bit of a shambles. He found broken glass on the floor and a small amount of blood on the computer mouse and keyboard. Phoebe's purse, wallet, and keys were on the kitchen counter, but she was nowhere to be found. Although Aunt was a bit concerned at that point, he assumed their dinner plans had been canceled, and he proceeded to order takeout for one from the same restaurant they were supposed to meet Phoebe's father. He had a beer and went on the internet, and when the food arrived at the door, the delivery man told Aunt that there were police in the lobby. He decided to go downstairs to check it out. He was told that a female concierge had discovered a woman's body in the refuse room. She appeared to have plummeted down the garbage chute, ultimately activating the motion sensor on the trash compactor, which nearly severed her right foot. There was a large trail of blood behind her, as if she dragged herself around the room before finally bleeding to death in the dark, locked room. After describing her tattoos, Aunt learned it was Phoebe. When emergency services arrived, police would not allow them to touch Phoebe for fear that they would disturb the scene, so there was no telling whether she was alive at that point, and no official time of death was ever documented. But somehow, by 9 p.m. that same evening, two hours after Phoebe was found, investigators were already referring to this as a suicide. Now, this is where the investigation went completely haywire. Phoebe was supposedly alone that night, but there were two glasses on her kitchen counter. The liquid inside the glasses was not tested, and the glasses were not dusted for prints. 
Any available CCTV footage was not collected, nor was the blood on the computer keyboard or mouse tested. When Phoebe's family was eventually able to access her laptop, they discovered that all of her outgoing emails had been deleted. Furthermore, Phoebe had two phones, an iPhone and a Nokia phone. That Nokia phone has never been located. Phoebe's autopsy revealed that her blood alcohol level was 0.16, which is over three times the legal limit in Australia of 0.05. The report also revealed that she had a dosage of Stillnox in her system, which is a sleeping medication that was prescribed to Ant. There was also bruising found on the back of her arms and wrists. Here is the investigator's theory. While Phoebe was drinking in her apartment, she broke a glass, and after only partially sweeping it up, she took the trash bag to the garbage chute, which, by the way, has never been found, and with delusional determination, suddenly decided to climb in. Now, as you might imagine, her family did not accept this theory. In fact, Phoebe's grandfather, Lorne Campbell, was a retired Melbourne detective, and he launched an investigation of his own. He appeared twice on 60 Minutes Australia, and each time he conducted a reenactment of what might have happened the night Phoebe died. He asked two of Phoebe's friends, who were similar in height, weight, and athleticism to Phoebe, to try to put themselves in an exact replica of the tiny garbage chute the way that the coroner claimed Phoebe had before her death. Now imagine this. The opening to the chute was eight and a half inches wide and almost three and a half feet off the ground. Phoebe was just over 5'8", but she would have had to hike her foot up above her shoulder to begin to try to climb in. And there was absolutely nothing to grab onto. It was just a sleek steel surface surrounding the hatch and the door to the hatch was weighted and shut automatically. In each of the reenactments, the women appeared to have an extremely difficult time hoisting themselves up that high. But after numerous attempts, both were able to do it eventually. The only difference was, they were both sober, and each admitted that it took every ounce of concentration, balance, and coordination to do it. Skills that Phoebe likely didn't have with that level of intoxication. So Phoebe's death went from a suicide ruling to death by misadventure. Case closed, right? Not so fast. Here in the crime cave, we're going to ask some questions. First off, why were they so quick to close this case? She was found at 7 p.m., and two hours later, the idea of foul play was completely ruled out. Investigators would like us to believe that she put herself into the chute in a sleepwalking state. However, when you sleepwalk, you tend to do things on autopilot, things that you would do on a regular basis, walking, eating, cleaning. I can't think of anyone who would make climbing into a garbage chute a regular occurrence. Now, there were two glasses on the table, but Phoebe was supposedly the only one in the apartment not only was the liquid in the glasses not tested, but the glasses were not dusted for prints. Who else was there? Remember, because of the fire alarm, there was no record of anyone who came in or out of that building for several hours. Who deleted all of her outgoing emails? 
The bruising that was found on Phoebe's arms during the autopsy was never questioned. Later, it was deemed likely that those bruises were obtained during a struggle. Perhaps while someone was forcing her into an eight and a half inch opening of a garbage chute. Now, we discussed how Phoebe dealt with depression over the years, but she was actively seeing a counselor, she was talking about her problems, and also making plans for the future. I have a really hard time believing that someone like Phoebe, someone who loved the outdoors, open spaces, forests, beaches, would choose to end her life in a dark, locked room surrounded by other people's garbage. And the blood trail showed she was trying to get out. But the single piece of evidence that stands out to me more than anything else is that there were zero prints on the garbage chute or the surrounding wall. It's absolutely impossible to get into that chute without leaving some kind of a mark. That wall and that chute was wiped down. After Phoebe's death, Aunt Hample reportedly acted strange and attempted to block further investigation. But I want to say again that he has been absolutely cleared of this, and also Phoebe's family doesn't appear to focus on him as a suspect. Her mom wonders whether Phoebe may have said something to upset someone, and that whoever was involved panicked and tried to get rid of her. Her detective grandfather, Lorne, seems to think that her death could have something to do with Melbourne's drug trade. But regardless of who is to blame, the family has not wavered from their position that Phoebe was murdered. It's now been 13 years since Phoebe's bizarre and tragic death, and it seems unlikely that official justice will be served, with her mom stating, natural justice is the only thing we're going to get out of this. Karma will come to whoever has been involved. We just have to be patient. And now for today's listener question. Okay, today's question is from Tom, and he wants to know if I have ever attended CrimeCon. Yes, I actually did back in May of 2018 when it was in Nashville. There were some really interesting speakers and seminars, and I especially liked visiting all the different podcasters on Podcast Row. I was especially looking forward to meeting Nick and the captain from True Crime Garage. And also Justin and Aaron from The Generation Y. All those guys were super nice. And who knows, maybe I'll be able to grab a spot on Podcast Row at a crime con coming up in the near future. I just want to continue to build my audience and uh, I'll go from there. Thanks for your question, Tom. Hey, everybody, it's Ray the Roadie. And this is Hollywood Mike with the Rock and Roll Chicago podcast coming to you from the Illinois Rock and Roll Museum on Route 66 in Joliet, Illinois, where once a week we are interviewing local musicians and singer songwriters. And the podcast itself covers a wide range of topics, including but not limited to the history of rock and roll in Chicago, the current state of the scene and the challenges and opportunities facing musicians today. So join us every Tuesday for a new exciting episode of the Rock and Roll Chicago podcast. Thanks for joining me. This episode of Crime Cave has been brought to you by Fortress Defense Consultants, providing security consulting for educational institutions, corporate facilities, and houses of worship, as well as pepper spray, situational awareness, and defensive firearms training for police and private citizens. Find Fortress on the web at FortressDefense.com. Contact Fortress directly at 
522-8060 or email them at info at fortressdefense.com. Avoid being the subject of a future episode of Crime Cave. Train with Fortress today. Until next time.